910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We are on part three of our mini-series, Dysfunctional Children, Functional God, which is an in-depth study of the parable of the prodigal son. So far, we've looked at the self-righteous child and the defiant child. Today is going to be our last episode on the dysfunctional children, and we're going to wrap it up with the rule follower. And after we get through all the dysfunctional children, we will turn our attention to the functional God, our very functional God. Being a rule follower can be a good thing or a bad thing. We'll start by looking at it from the perspective of being a bad thing. Chris, before we get into the text for this week, I can't help but notice that almost everyone can probably see themselves in one of the three dysfunctional children we've been looking at, the self-righteous, the defiant, and the rule follower. Yeah, we can all all probably see ourselves in one of these. And hopefully, if we're Christians, we're being sanctified and we see these characteristics in ourselves less and less. But since we are perfected on this side of heaven, we may see some lingering traits of these three dysfunctional children still in us. Some of us might wrestle with pride or thinking that we know what's best or we're always right, like the self-righteous. Or maybe we struggle with putting ourselves completely under God's rule and we want to make our own rules. Or maybe, like we're going to look at today, we're a rule follower. While this seems like and can be a good thing, as we're going to see today, without the right heart attitude, it's just as dysfunctional as the other two characteristics. And Chris, I have an example of how being a rule follower can be dysfunctional. Several years ago, I had a friend that I repeatedly invited to church. And finally, one Sunday, her and her teenage daughter came. They walked into the sanctuary, each with a cup of coffee in their hands, and sat down next to me. As soon as the service was over, a woman from the church, who didn't know my friend at all, made a beeline for her and her daughter and clearly and bluntly informed them that they were not permitted to have coffee in the sanctuary. Now, granted, there was a small sign outside the sanctuary that said, please don't bring food or drinks into the sanctuary. But I had spent weeks trying to get my friend to church, and she finally came. And I think holding the cup of coffee just made her feel more secure. So while technically she broke the rule, this woman was so obsessed with following the rules that she ended up running my friend out of the church. And as far as I know, she's never gone back. And how many other people were sitting there saying or thinking the same thing? Yeah. You know, it's terrible. You know, an even more extreme example of rule following gone wrong. In many parts of the Middle East, following the rules of morality are so important that nonconformity not only brings shame to the perpetrator, but to the whole family. And in many instances, the rule breaker is killed. Like you keep the rules or else you die. Yeah. And of course, the opposite of the extreme rule following and just as, if not more destructive, is lawlessness. And we, gosh, we see examples of that all over the place in the U.S. and places in Europe right now where there's no rules. You can be whatever gender you want. You can protest whatever you want. You can treat the police with disrespect whenever you want. You can loot and burn businesses in the name of justice whenever you want. You can call someone a racist, a bigot, or even accuse them of a crime without any proof whenever you want. Basically, you can live your life however you want, regardless at whose expense it's at or whose detriment it's to. Yeah. Okay. So we gave examples of the destructiveness of extreme rule following and lawlessness. 
So Rose, let's start looking at the parable of the prodigal son and apply some biblical truth to all of this. We said last week that the defiant son, the one who takes the inheritance early and blows it on wild living, is often the one that people consider the lost one in this parable. The name says that, that people call it the prodigal son. If you recall last week, we left off at Luke 15, 20a. It says, and he, the younger son, arose and came to his father. Just for context, we'll read Luke 15, 20b to 24. But we will actually delve into those verses in the next episode. So here's those verses. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Like you said, Chris, we're going to deal with the father next week. This week, we're looking at the older brother, and he shows up in the following verses that you just read, Luke 15, 25 to 32. And they say, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so there's so much to unpack here. First, I want to point out something that we talked about in the first episode of this series. Earlier, when Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep, he said in Luke 15, 7, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And if you recall... We said that there is no one who has ever lived except Jesus who hasn't needed to repent. Jesus is addressing those who think they are righteous on their own and therefore have nothing to repent of. In contrast, the quote unquote sinners, as the Pharisees called them, those who did not keep the Pharisaical laws, knew they were sinners. Jesus is showing that sharp contrast here. And he shows it again in another parable a few chapters later in Luke 18, 9 to 14. I'll read that parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
That parable you just read fits perfectly with this parable of the prodigal son. The younger son who definitely sinned came crawling back to his father asking for forgiveness. The older son doesn't even go to the father. He stays on the porch doing in his self-righteousness. The father goes out to him. And there's a lot going on with this older brother. And as with everything, things are never simple. First, if you remember, we said that when the father gave the younger son his inheritance early, it cost the father a lot. The older son would have been given a double portion of inheritance, that's just how it was. So in essence, the father gave one third of his estate to the younger son as his inheritance. The remaining two thirds that the father and the older son were using and living on technically belong to the older son. Right. So now the younger brother comes back in the picture. The father welcomes him back as a son. He once again is part of the family. That means that any resources used for the younger son technically belong to the older brother. And more, now that he's officially a son again, when the father dies, the younger son will receive a third of what's left. Basically, the younger son just blew a third of the father's estate. It's gone, never to be gotten back again. And by reinstating the younger son into the family, the father's wiped away any consequences for his younger son's action. The younger son will get another inheritance when the father dies. And of course, the older son would have known that, and it really ticks him off. The ring, the robe, the shoes, the fattened calf used to welcome back the younger son, not to mention the house, the farm, the money, by rights should belong to the older son. But now his inheritance is diminished by a third because his brother's back. And this really exposes the older brother's heart. There are a few reasons why he's so mad. But one big reason is greed. He put the time in working to build his share of the estate. And now his younger brother, who squandered a third, is back and going to take some of what's his. You can understand a little of why this would be frustrating. This parable used to frustrate me when I would read it. <laughs> you know, as a kid, I could never understand it. I could never wrap my brain around it. But Jesus warns of the greed in Luke 12, 14. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This was a major sin on both sons. Both coveted what the father had and saw it as rightfully theirs. They forgot that what the father had belonged to the father and not to them, at least as long as the father was alive. Both are looking at the father only by what he had that they could get out of him. So in essence, neither son wanted a relationship with their father. They just wanted his stuff and the blessings he could give them. The younger son was more honest about it by just asking for his share, while the older son just put his time in waiting for his, his share to come to him. And while it may look like the older son was more noble, staying with his father, keeping the rules, working for him, for both of these brothers, the father was just a means to an end. Neither saw the father as their father someone to be loved and adored, someone to pursue a relationship with, someone to learn from, gain wisdom from, and truly serve, and not for selfish means, but just out of love. So both boys started out at the same place, greed and with no desire for a relationship with their father. But things have changed. The younger son realizes he's a sinner and he's lost, and he comes humbly to the father asking for forgiveness. He knew he wasn't worthy of it, but he was relying on the kindness and mercy of his father. And this parable clearly shows what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
Yeah. So part of what ticks the older brother off is the fact that he now has to share what he considers his, but there's a lot more going on. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to those considered sinners by the Pharisees. The younger son definitely represented the sinners. For them, this parable is a story of hope. Jesus is telling them no one is too far gone that they can't be redeemed by God. In fact, just as when the sheep was found and the coin was found in the other two parables, there's a celebration and rejoicing when someone lost is found. As 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9b says, For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Jesus also showed this physically by dining and associating with sinners. So for the worst of the worst, as defined by the religious leaders, this story has a happy ending. But there's two sons in this story. And while both are equally lost, the story only ends happily for one of them. Besides greed, the older brother has other issues. Look at what he says. He says, look these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This older son considers himself to be the good son. Remember, the Pharisees were listening. And just as they looked down on some and considered them the quote-unquote sinners, while they and others who quote-unquote, followed the rules, were righteous and good, this older son considers his younger brother the sinner while he's the righteous and good one. Yeah, and we're going to get to the older son thinking of his younger brother as the sinner in a minute. But first, let's look at the older brother thinking he's the good one or the righteous one. Romans 3.10, which is quoting Psalm 53, says, there is none who does good. Like the Pharisees, the older brother thought that following the rules made him good and righteous. Also, like the Pharisees, his rule following wasn't joyful service, but it was instead joyless servitude. He says, look these many years I have served you. The Greek word Jesus used here was one used for a slave's work. This son found no joy in working for his father. It was a burden to him. He was just hanging in there, doing it all until his father died. The graceless service of the self-righteous person is more a hard duty than it is joyful service to God. And that's exactly what I saw in that woman from the church that I told you about earlier. She was so bent on following the rules and making sure everyone else did, there was no joy in her. She couldn't find joy in seeing two new faces in church. She only saw the cups of coffee in their hands and went ballistic because it violated a rule. She was a Pharisee. Instead of seeing two people who could possibly come to Christ, she saw two sinners who didn't keep the law. And I want to quote something here from John Sartell from Ligonier Ministries on this. He says, self-righteousness cannot exist without producing an attitude of moral superiority, a lack of mercy, and a joyless servitude. The elder brother of the prodigal son in Jesus's parable is a living picture of these characteristics that always suckle at the breast of self-righteousness. Great quote. Yeah. You know, self-righteousness and joyless rule following really boils down to pride. It's pride in your ability and superiority to keep the rules over those who don't. And as we often say, sin is sin as far as all is deserving of condemnation. But there's definitely a difference in the severity and consequences of sin. 
And one of the most deadly sins of all is pride. And part of that is because unlike other sins, you don't even know that you're guilty of it often. You don't see it. The younger brother clearly saw that he had squandered his money and was living in filth due to his own decisions. That was obvious. But the older brother only saw that he had stayed and slaved away for his father. No sin in that, right? But his prideful self-righteousness is a very dangerous sin. As C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And there was no doubt that the older brother thought of himself much better than his younger brother. I mean, just listen to his words. Yep. You could almost picture him sneering as he worked every day, thinking, at least I'm not like my brother, just like in the parable that we told with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Like the Pharisees and maybe some of us, having someone else to look down on as worse gives us our value and our worth. You know, Chris, the first sign that we may have an elder brother spirit is how we react when things in our life don't go as we want. It's not just that we're sorrowful and maybe a little disappointed, but instead we're actually angry and bitter because we didn't get what we think we deserve. And even further, we can't stand to see someone who we consider much worse than us getting good things. We hate that. Yeah. This may be what the apostles were feeling at the beginning when Paul got saved and Jesus made him one of them. They definitely didn't trust him, but it may be deeper than that. You can almost hear him saying, seriously, Jesus, like you're letting this guy be an apostle after what he's done. You know, it's how many reacted to Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was an attorney and he was the hatchet man for President Nixon. He was the, at the forefront of the Watergate scandal. And when that scandal broke, Colson was a new Christian. As a result, he voluntarily pled guilty to the obstruction of justice in 1974 and served seven months in Alabama's Maxwell prison for his part in the Watergate crime, a sentence that was way too light, according to some. Yeah, and Colson emerged from prison with a new mission, mobilizing the Christian church to minister to prisoners. In 1976, he founded Prison Fellowship, which is now the nation's largest Christian nonprofit that serves prisoners, former prisoners and their families, and they're a leading advocate for criminal justice reform. In recognition of his work among prisoners, Colson received the prestigious Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion in 1993. You may recognize his name. He's written countless books. He was a leading speaker and preacher in the word of God. Yep. He has great books out there. He has great books. But you know, there were still many who looked at him and only saw the corrupt man who aided Nixon in a crime. You know, how dare he write about the Bible? Exactly. And as Jesus often does, he turns that belief system upside down. By the father welcoming the younger son back into the family and by Jesus dining with the quote unquote sinners, he's showing that these deplorables belong in the family of God, as opposed to those who drudge along daily following every rule, who are being their own savior. This would have been a severe blow to the pride of the Pharisees. Yep. And continuing in Luke 16, Jesus goes on telling another parable about being a trusted servant. And after that, we see Jesus deal with the final blow to the Pharisees and give us a warning too. Luke 16, 14 and 15 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him, meaning Jesus. And he said to them, 
You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among man is an abomination in the sight of God. And Paul backs that up with Romans 10, 3, which says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And John 2 backs it up in 1 John 1, 8 to 10, when he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Pretty harsh words. Sobering, very sobering. And there's even more warnings when self-righteousness leads to pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And James wraps all this up, this whole parable in a ribbon when he says in James 4.6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And true to their self-righteous rule-following persona, the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. How dare a carpenter's son from Nazareth tell them that they have God's word wrong and they aren't included in the family of God. Who does he think he is? Well, he's God. That's who he is. (laughs) Yeah. But they were blinded from seeing that by the coldness and the hardness of their hearts. Therefore, to them, he was just some radical insulting them and threatening their way of life by making sinners thinking they're better than they are and by making the righteous think they're worse than they are. And this is the exact mindset of the older brother. And this leads to his other big problem. He says to his father, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother doesn't even consider the younger son his brother anymore. He refers to him as this son of yours. Maybe he never thought of him as his brother. And, you know, why does he say it that way, this son of yours? Well, yeah, he's mad about his inheritance. And yeah, he thinks he's better than his brother because he stayed and followed the rules. But it's even deeper than that. The older brother thinks after what his brother has done that he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Chris, we alluded to this in the first episode of the series, but this is exactly what Jonah's problem was. God told Jonah, go preach to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And even though they hadn't yet conquered the northern nation of Israel, they were still Israel's hated enemy. It was just like Rome was to the Jews of Jesus's time. And like radical Islamists and those who hate and persecute Christians are to us today. Jonah didn't want to preach to them because he was worried they'd repent and God would save them. He didn't think they deserved to be saved. In an object lesson, God has a vine grow overnight to give Jonah shade from the scorching sun. Then he sends a worm to eat the vine, which makes Jonah really mad. And God says to him in Jonah 4.10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Just like Nineveh, the older brother, didn't think the younger brother deserved to be forgiven and received by his father. He thinks by following rules, he has the right to tell his father how to dispense his grace. Jesus is showing us that while the common definition of sin is disobeying God, there's another definition. Someone who thinks that they keep all of God's laws is still guilty of sin. 
First, because regardless of what someone may think, nobody keeps God's law. Sin's not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Both sons sought to override the authority of their father and be their own masters. Right. And as soon as you have pride, you're sinning. So there you go. Yep. <laughs> Both of these brothers were sinners. Both were running from and avoiding God, who's represented by the father in the story. One did it by flagrantly opposing the rules and living life on his own terms. The other one did it by keeping the rules and doing that thinking he had rights. We all fall into this. We may think God owes us answered prayers, a good life, our best life now, a ticket to heaven because we do everything right. We go to church, we serve, we follow the rules. The problem with this is that it translates into that you don't really need a savior who pardoned you by free grace because you're your own savior. Right. It makes me think of funerals that I've been to where people say, he was such a good person. I know he's in a better place. And we don't mean to sound harsh or cruel, but if you're thinking that there's anything that we can do to merit our salvation, we need to completely eradicate that thinking because we're totally wrong. The Pharisees, this older brother, and some of us divide the world into good people like, like them or like ourselves, if we think that way, and bad people like the younger brother or people that we look down on. But Jesus doesn't divide the world into good guys and bad guys. No. Everyone who doesn't know Jesus is seeking to use God or other means to save themselves and or obtain power and control. I've heard people say, and I've read a lot of commentaries, that we should find a balance between the older brother and the younger brother, that we should be good, but not be self-righteous. But Chris, if you're not watching on video, you can't see Chris shaking her head because you know that's missing the whole point of this parable entirely. It's not just about- totally missing it. Yeah. It's not about being good yet not being self-righteous. Scripture says everyone is sinful. And for those saved by God, we need to see that everyone is in need of a savior. Absolutely, 100%. The only prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is knowing that you need it. In the early 1900s, a newspaper once published a question and invited readers to respond to the question, what's wrong with this world? Noted theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote this, and I'm quoting here, Dear Sirs, I am. <laughs> Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Short and sweet. Now, he actually, you know, he hit the nail on the head. That's right. That's right. Paul says, of all the sinners of which I'm the worst. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, and I know we said everyone can probably identify with one of the brothers, and we all probably can. But the most important takeaway from this parable it's not seeing yourself in one of the brothers, but it's truly seeing yourself as a sinner in need of your father's grace and in need of saving. You need to know that you have a great need. We all have a great need and we have absolutely nothing to offer in return except that need. Right. We have nothing. We come nothing. empty handed. You know, Rose, I think these two brothers would have benefited greatly if they had another brother another elder brother, and the same is true for us. Now look at you smoothly transitioning into the next section. Chris, they did have another brother, and so do we. He's the true elder brother of all who belong to him, and obviously it's Jesus. Right, and thus far in the parable, there are two paths that can be taken. One is living life on your own terms, and one is keeping the rules to try to get what you deserve. 
Both may temporarily seem to offer happiness, but both will lead to your life being no better than pig slop. Thankfully, there's a third way. There is, because there's an elder brother, and he's not like this elder brother in the story. He's the true elder brother. In the previous two parables Jesus told, the shepherd went looking for the lost sheep and the woman went looking for her lost coin. But in this parable, no one goes looking for the lost younger son. In that culture, that would have been the job of the elder brother to go looking for his younger brother. The eldest brother took on a lot of the responsibilities of the family and going to look for their siblings in this kind of case would have been his responsibility. Absolutely. The problem is that the elder brother in this parable is a Pharisee. He's too busy being self-righteous and good to concern himself with the brother who's lost. This directly mirrors what was going on around Jesus. You may remember that we talked about it in the first episode. The Pharisees were happy to condemn those who were sinners, but they didn't give a flip about those people's spiritual condition. They had no interest in bringing them to a saving knowledge of God, only in condemning them. And when his brother returned, he was more concerned about what it was going to cost him than he was about his brother coming home. Right. He didn't care. That's right. And that was exactly the point Jesus was making. The younger brother in this parable, as well as the sinners listening, as well as every human being who's ever lived, except for Jesus, needs an elder brother. One who understands that it's his job to save his brothers and sisters and who has the power to actually do it. As Hebrews 2.11 says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And as Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This story should make us long for a true elder brother, one who does come looking for us regardless of the cost, one who would leave the comfort of heaven and come to earth to find us. And he did this at the cost of temporarily giving up his glory, subjecting himself to temptation, persecution, and torture, and ultimately paying with his own life. Also, he could reconcile us to the Father. Our Heavenly Father is not only loving and merciful, he's also just. He is perfectly holy and he cannot leave sin go unpunished. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. And unlike the elder brother in his parable, we need to totally take it to heart and fully believe that Christ has fulfilled all the law, paid all the debt we owe to God for our sin through his death on the cross, like you said, and he's rescued us from Satan and death by his resurrection. We bring nothing, nothing to the table and everything's finished. So we don't need to do anything else. Absolutely. To fully and totally believe that the God of the universe loves us this much and that we don't have to do anything for him to love us any more than he already does, nor can we do anything that will make him love us any less, is the true freedom that the younger brother was looking for. And the grace and mercy we find at the feet of our Savior is the true reward the older son was looking for. Right. So our question is, do we live in that kind of freedom? When we sin and maybe sin horribly, Do we repent? Do we lay it at God's feet and ask for forgiveness? Then walk away knowing God has forgiven us and that we can put it behind us. Or do we continue to wallow in the guilt of it? On the other side, are there things we're doing for God or to be a good Christian that feel empty, enslaving, or leave us feeling joyless? Do we feel like we owe it to God to do them? 
Or are we joyfully serving our Lord and his people, knowing that it's not an obligation we have to fulfill, but it's a privilege we get to do? Yep. Our true elder brother did not die for us to wallow in our guilt feeding pigs, nor did he die for us to live in drudgery trying to be a good Christian. When we see and understand what he's done for us, we find that we don't have to fear, we don't have to try to measure up, and we don't have to strive. We just need to recognize our need and our sin and repent of both our bad things and our good things that are done with wrong motivation. Amen to that. We said that all we need to know is that we're sinners in need of a savior, but that's impossible for us to do on our own. The Pharisees, the older brother in the story, the younger brother, none of them had the ability to understand that they were born dead in their sins and even needed saving. And you know what? None of us do either until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us. And I want to quote Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, because it is crucial verses that we need to know. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I'll just add, or feel righteous. Absolutely. And that's where we're going to wrap up for this week. Join us next week for the last episode in our series, Dysfunctional Children, Functional God. And check out our social media pages for daily posts and excerpts, counting down the release of our new book, The Bible Blueprint, A Guide to Better Understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's releasing on August 17th. Have a blessed day, everybody. 